The uh, next step in our journey with the Ephesians will involve us looking at three letters from another person, not Paul this time. It's going to be the Apostle John, who served after Timothy in the church at Ephesus. John is also the one who was told to deliver a letter to the church in Ephesus from Jesus himself in the Revelation, warning them and, 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 and rebuking them for forgetting about their first love, for, for forgetting about him. Today, we will be looking at something else John wrote that in many ways sets the basis for what we will look at in the coming weeks. Our text today is from John's Gospel and includes arguably the best-known verse of the entire Bible, John 3.16, which some have called the simplest short summary of the entire Bible. But such notoriety can hinder our ability to, to hear the power of the text. So I'm going to read it here, and as I do, I would like you to listen closely, particularly for repeated words and loaded words, and we will then dive into a few of those. So hear the word of the Lord, John 3, chapter 3, starting in verse 14, going to verse 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. Thus ends the reading of the word. Perhaps the most obvious word in that text is the word begotten, which you did not even hear in my reading because it is not translated that way in the English Standard Version. If you were following along the reading in the New International Version, you also didn't hear the word begotten because the New International Version translated the underlying Greek word not as only son, like the English Standard Version, but as one and only son. Only begotten, which is the version most people quote and you see on the most billboards, is, for example, in the King James Version, the New King James Version, and the earlier versions of the New American Standard Bible. Begotten is also found multiple times in the Nicene Creed, which is the most universally accepted statement of what Christians have believed for centuries. So the natural question, though, is which is correct? Only begotten? One and only? Only? Well, the answer is that all of them are. The problem is with the English language's inability to capture the whole meaning of the underlying Greek word that is used, which is monogenes or monogenes. Trying to find a consensus on pronunciation was not easy. 
begotten in English, however, implies biology or being born, which means a beginning, which heretics have used to argue as proof that Jesus could not be fully and eternally God or somehow is lesser than the Father since he was begotten and he had a beginning. That's part of the reason the Nicene Creed counters that idea with the phrase begotten, not born, among other things. The scriptures make it very clear multiple times that the Son of God is fully and eternally God, so that whatever begotten means, it cannot mean that the Son of God had a beginning or is a lesser God. There is and always has only been one God. Many of the translations which have dropped begotten and went with one and only or only were in fact trying to strengthen the translation by making clear how truly unique Jesus is. However, in so doing, they they miss out on the dimension that a theologically correct understanding of the word begotten actually captures and that being that the Son of God is of the same kind or same nature as the Father. When the Jews heard this Greek word, they, they did not hear less or secondary. They found the whole idea behind the word kind of preposterous, that God could even have a son. If God did have a son in their framework, the son would have the same nature and be an extension of the Father, which, is, which in their misunderstanding could only mean a second God. That's why they had such a hard time with it. So, so what does the, the Greek word translated, only begotten son, only son, one and only son, really mean? I made reference to the Nicene Creed because it states it best. So as I read it, and, and the reason I'm covering this is this is the person that we're talking about in this text. So as I read it, keep in mind that the person being described is the one who came and suffered and died for us that we wouldn't have to perish, but that we might have eternal life. It says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. The point that I'm making is this. As we look at this text, we need to be crystal clear about whom we are talking. The one who came to save us about whom the text is talking, is God himself. The next thing I want to dive into is the clarification of our condition before the coming of the Son of God. So here verses 17 and 18 again. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. We were condemned before he came. But what does condemned mean? It is a statement of position or fact that a person stands guilty and is therefore subject to consequences or punishment. A just judge does not make somebody guilty or condemned. A just judge merely declares the fact. And verses 17 and 18 make it clear that God in Christ Jesus' coming did not come to pass that judgment of condemnation, for it existed already. He came not to condemn, but to save. One of the oft-repeated lies of Satan is that God condemns good people and sends good people to hell. A number of major errors underlie this kind of thinking. One of them is the misguided idea that anyone is good, which means perfect, which is the requirement for entry to heaven. However, the scriptures make it clear that no one is perfect. And truthfully, any honest soul would also admit that they are not perfect and that they have sinned. And the more honest they are, the bigger the list of sins. And the reality is that those tainted by sin cannot enter heaven. It's incompatible. Perfect goes to heaven. Imperfect people, sinners, stand condemned and will go to hell. Another error is the concept that God is some kind of ogre just looking for people to pick off and send to hell, which truthfully is, is characteristic more of the other gods that mankind has created. Just think of the Greek pantheon. However, it is not true of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The truth is that God has never been unfair and will never be unfair, that he is demonstrably long-suffering. And while he didn't have to, he made a path of salvation for those who will just turn to him and trust him, resulting in God himself cleansing them of all of their sins, qualifying them for heaven. Another error is the idea that, okay, uh, we stand condemned because of our sin and rejection of God, okay, but a good God would save everyone. That idea is so egotistical that it should foul our senses. Who, who are we to even think that? Well, we can and, and should and will take responsibility for our sins and shortcomings, we cannot take credit for our own existence, nor can we control the future. We also don't have any rights, I mean, including the right to err. 
We owe everything to the one who made us, made us so wonderfully that our cells hold together and we don't just dissolve into a a puddle of water. The assumption that we deserve anything from God who created us is simply folly. And it is presumptive to think that God has to behave how we think he should behave. This is important for us to always keep in mind. We are created things. He is the creator. While our egos might not like that, the truth is that our value, our destiny, let alone our very existence, is only because of the grace and kindness of God. He owes us nothing. We owe him everything. And all we really have to offer is our sin-tainted imperfection. We should never forget that we are the clay and he is the potter. And that we, lumps of clay, have sinned and gone astray and gone our own way and gotten off the potter's wheel. And because of that, as the scriptures just said, we stand condemned. Condemned for rebelling against God, of sinning, of doing wrong that he knew was wrong, that we knew was wrong, and of no longer being perfect. And that is just simply a fact. And here is the amazing thing. Verse 17 and 18 make it clear that Jesus came not to condemn, for we stood condemned already, but he came to save us. The third thing we will look at is the word believe, because it's repeated five times in our five verses. What does believe mean? First, it is not merely a recognition of fact. Satan recognizes the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He even fears him and reveres him, but he does not believe in him. Believing in the Son of God implies placing one's entire life and being under the control of God. It means means trusting God. It means acting according to what Jesus wants and says instead of what we want. Believing means making the Son of God one's hope and purpose and reason. Believing in the Son of God means recognizing who Jesus is and putting your entire trust in him, which, we, which will be evidenced by your behavior. And, and here is the message of the text. Those who do, who do believe in the Son of God, Jesus, are no longer condemned. And this leads into our next issue, which is the little word, so as it appears in verse 16. This is a big little word. Uh, I'm going to read verse 316 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Like me, you probably hear 
God loved the world so much that he sent. And while that is completely true, that is not actually what the word translated as so really means. What it really means is that God loved the world in this way, with an emphasis less on why God did what he did, but on what God did. The emphasis is not on how much God loves us, but on what God did for us. The word translated as so also, according to the Greek scholars, ties back to the previous statement in verses 14 and 15 to a very specific, and for those listening to Jesus at the time, well-known story in the life of Israel found in Numbers chapter 21. Israel, this is the story that Jesus is referring to in verses 14 and 15. Let me read those here. Verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus is referring back to this well-known story from Numbers chapter 21. And the story is this. Israel had been delivered from Egypt and had seen miracle after miracle as God provided for them and protected them and revealed himself to them and gave his law to them and helped them through all kinds of challenges, helped them understand his holiness and loved them just unconditionally. He even had just delivered them to the door of the promised land. And then they freaked out about the size of the inhabitants of the promised land. Rather than put their trust in God or keep their trust in God, they gave in to fear and wanted to go on their own way. And this resulted in their being stuck in the wilderness for another 40 years. During this time, God still provided for them. Notably, he continued to provide the food from heaven, manna. And, and they started to complain about the manna, which again, they at this point certainly didn't deserve and which they would have starved to death without. They started to complain about it. And, and they also started to blame Moses for their additional time in the wilderness, which was entirely a consequence of their own doing and their not trusting God. In response to their complaining, their, their sin, God sent fiery serpents that started to bite them. The serpents were a consequence of their sin, a sign of their condemnation. And the sinful people started to die. And then God gave them a way to be saved. God told Moses to erect a bronze snake on a pole, a snake, the snake being the symbol of their sin and the consequences of their sin, and, and to tell the people, if you want to be saved, look at the symbol of your sin on that pole. And those that did lived. The bronze snake had no power, but trusting in God, which is really what was behind looking at the bronze snake, really trusting in God was the element that was required, meant that they would be saved. And they were. Can you hear the parallel? 
We also were loved by God, and we sinned. And we were condemned to die and spend eternity in hell because of our sin. And Jesus came and took our sin upon himself and was put on a pole. And if we look to the consequence of our sin on that pole, specifically God, who was willing to die in our stead, then we will be saved. I mean, that's amazing. God died that we could be saved. Hear our text again. I'm going to read it again. And as I read it, think about some of the things that I've covered. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Absolutely, the perfect, all-powerful, eternal creator of all loved the world who had rebelled against him and gotten off the potter's wheel and had gone our own way. And even in that state of our condemnation, God chose to love us in this way, to come and die on a pole for our sins so that we could be saved if we turn to him knowing that God himself bore the consequences of our sin and then put our trust in him, not in ourselves or anything else. That is what this text is telling us, that the one and only begotten Son of God, God himself, came to die, that those who looked upon him will no longer be condemned but be saved. About 750 years after the episode in the wilderness with the bronze snake on a pole, that bronze snake on a pole shows up again. Actually, it's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 18. By this time, people had actually started to worship the bronze snake on a pole, and Hezekiah, who's referred to as the best king of Judah, had the thing destroyed. But for 750 years, they packed this thing around, and they got it wrong. The problem was they, they had for completely forgotten the meaning of the snake on the pole, of the need of trusting for salvation in God. We should never make that mistake. When we hear these verses, we need to hear and think about what God did while we stood condemned due to our sin. 
God himself demonstrated his love by coming and willingly suffering and dying on a cross so that we would be saved from hell. That is something that should cause us to submit to him in humility and thanksgiving. We, like those people in the wilderness, were going to die due to the consequences of our sin. We, like them, need to look to the one on the pole and put our trust in God, and he will save us. And here's the truth. Many, many people acknowledge all of this. In fact, Satan and his demons know this. The question is, that word that we talked about a little earlier, will you believe it? Will you really look upon Jesus, the one on the cross who died for your sin? Will you look to him as your only hope to be saved from the consequences of your sin? Will you believe in him, put your trust in him, knowing that without him, you will perish? Will you thank him? Not just for how much he loves us, because, oh, he does, but for what he did to show it, to prove it, to save you. Today is the day. Let it not pass. Let's pray. Father, we can only thank you for what you did in Christ Jesus. We are aware of our sin. And we are aware of the cost that you bore that we could be saved. Thank you. Help us to keep our eyes on you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.